0: FlushCare.com slash weight loss.
2: Across
3: the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's the place where we use common sense as an antidote to the idiocy currently being exhibited by our government, which reached peak plankery over the weekend. In response to a COVID variant which has so far affected less than 10 people in this country, Boris Johnson and his henchmen, the Brothers Grimm, Messrs Witty and Valance, had the gall to hold a press conference on Saturday at which they told us absolutely nothing, attempted to scare the hell out of people and announced that things can only get worse before christmas is there anything these absolute no marks won't do to terrify misinform and manipulate the people who gave them their trust and asked them to run the country sensibly for the next few years what happened over the weekend was nothing short of disgusting and i am disgusted ladies and gentlemen this morning by what i saw because i think there is absolutely no need for any of the measures that have been brought in let me tell you i for one am sick of it i will not wear a mask in a shop I will not wear a mask on public transport and I will not comply with these latest ludicrous guidelines, which will do nothing, as we have already seen, to stop the spread of what appears to be a very benign version of COVID-19. Enough already. Let's give Boris Johnson a message this morning. We're not going to take it any more. 0344 499 1000. We're talking to Dr. Renee Hundekamp this morning, who is like me, incredulous at the behaviour of this sham administration. Worse than that, last night Education Minister Nadim Zahawi attended the Pearson National Teaching Awards with hundreds of teaching heroes, all of whom thought it was fine to hug each other to cram into an event space, to huddle closely together without wearing masks, while this morning demanding that children in their schools, in their care, cannot do the same thing. What an absolute shambles. I'm going to tell you right now, this is peak hypocrisy and we have to stand up against it. Liz Cole from Us For Them will vent her anger today on that as well. Peter Hitchens is also here with his take on the latest freedom grab from the government. He warned you would continue to do so. Like me, he is gearing up for a winter of discontent, to say nothing of my plans to head to America, which have now increased in price by almost £500, thanks to Sajid Javid here's what it is it's a pornographic festival of fear it's a disgraceful episode of scaremongering and it's yet another example of this government's overreach into our lives we did not elect these people to tell us what to do we did not elect these people to tell us to wear a mask when you go into a shop why do i have to wear a mask to go into a shop where is the bleeding evidence for any reason to do so if you want to wear a mask be my guest if you don't want to breathe or um, on anyone wear a mask if you don't want anyone to see your face if you don't want anyone to hear what you can say Wear a mask. Do do whatever you want to do. Don't tell me to wear one. I'm not doing it. Okay. simple as that. 0344 499 1000. We're talking migrants to David Simmons, MP, co-chair of the Parliamentary Group on Refugees. And Angela Levitt will bring us the latest from the world of the royal family, including the start of the trial today in New York of Ghislaine Maxwell. Simon Calder is also reporting into us live from Florida, because don't forget, everybody's Christmas plans have been thrown up in the air. If you were planning to go away and see anybody, I'm planning to go and see my 97-year-old mother. I will not forgive you, Boris Johnson, if I don't get to do that. You will not have my forgiveness, ever. And in fact, I may mark you down on the list. And once you're on the list, you never get off it. Simple as that. 0344 499 1000. This is me, Mike Graham, right here on the angriest version of the Independent Republic of Mike Graham that you will have ever seen. This is Talk Radio. mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. I am actually pretty angry this morning, and I've been angry before, but never really as angry as this, because this, to me, is complete and utter balderdash, it's cobblers, it's rubbish, it's nonsense, it's lots of other things that I can't say on the radio. Let's talk to Dr. Renee Honderkamp, uh, NHS GP medical writer, of course, as well, a woman who has seen a few things in her life, and who, like me, is, is as incredulous as anyone about what is going on. Renee, very good morning to you.
0: Morning, Mike. I'm not going to say, how
3: are you? I just, I can't, I can't believe it. I literally, I mean, I'm normally relatively sane. I can normally deal with most things and I'm dealing with it in the best way that I know how, but I'm really angry.
0: Me too. I mean, I'm absolutely furious. I'm furious for so many reasons. Most of it, just the sheer illogicality of all of it, if you actually think about what they've done and why they've done it, there's just no real evidence at all. But none of it is logical. So for example, if we were worried about this variant coming off of planes from South Africa, why didn't we stop those planes immediately? Why are we waiting to whenever it is 4am on a Monday or a Tuesday again? You know, if we think that masks are so important, why weren't they introduced at the press conference for the very next morning? You know, why is it not till Tuesday? Things are not going to become dangerous until Tuesday. You know, and in schools, let's think about schools. We saw a study this weekend that said masks have actually hampered the development of our children during lockdown. And we know that. We've seen it. And yet... Most of their time at school is spent in the classroom where they don't have to wear masks or in the canteen when they're eating and laughing and joking and jumping where they don't have to wear masks. But suddenly COVID again is dangerous when they walk around the corridors. It's just madness at work.
3: It really is. And I mean, you're a doctor, Renee, right? And and there are plenty of doctors who disagree and that's fine. And there are plenty of doctors who've got different views. But it seems to me, you know, we get these reports now. Oh, Scotland have got six cases. So what? You know, England's got three cases. There's 65 million people living here. The South Africans are saying that no one there has been hospitalised as a result of this particular variant. And that may change, as they say. But right now, it doesn't look very dangerous to me. And all I know is that my particular plans for going to America have been thrown into disarray. At the very least, I'm going to have to spend about 500 extra pounds. I can do that, but not everybody can. You know, if I don't get to see my 97-year-old mother, you know, I'm not going to be responsible for what I do about that.
0: Well, exactly the same, Mike. And we're going away for Christmas too. And my three-year-old and my 78-year-old mother are really, really excited. It's like the treat at the end of a nightmare. You know, my little one talks about finding Nemo every day when she goes under the sea. And we now have to pay for those extra tests. Fine. We're really lucky. We can afford that. But if we have to isolate also, even though we've all had COVID and been vaccinated, I will actually not be in the NHS working as a result. And there'll be lots of people that are doing this. It's just I, I find it absolutely incredulous. Of course, we've got more than nine cases in the UK and most people don't even know they've got this variant. So I'm sure it's everywhere and we will start to find it now because we're looking for it because it's like any medical test, you know. The reason we don't just scan people every day to see if they've got an illness is we will find things that are not harmful. But then once you've found them, you have to scratch your head and decide what to do about them. And that's kind of where we are here. But without any science behind it also, at all. Also, you
3: know, come on, Renee, you know about a transmission of virus, right? What sort of moron says, it's all right for you to get on a plane and sit with another 500 people. It's all right for you to get off the plane and queue up in a, an, an, an arrivals hall it's all right for you to wait for your baggage in a very crowded place it's all right for you to get on a train to go home but then you've got to isolate for two days it's complete
0: rubbish it is i've laughed a lot over this time because i've flown quite a lot and i always think that when we're told that we're we've been sitting in a plane for three hours together mingling around going to the loo and then at the end we're going to disembark you by four rows at a time for covid safety measures and then everybody goes down the steps and is piled onto a bus together like a sardine. And the bus waits longer because people are being disembarked by row numbers yeah. for COVID safety. None of this is logical. A 10-year-old could take all of these rules and put a pen through the, the ones that just aren't logical, which is most of them. Yeah. And, I, you know, I've been criticised this weekend because way back at the beginning of this endemic pandemic, sorry, I supported masks, which I did because... We didn't know anything about it. It seemed logical at the time that to just keep everyone safe, let's try. And then I've been criticised because I changed my stance later last year. And I've tried to explain that that's what a scientist should be doing. They should be looking at the evidence, reviewing what they said, and if needed, changing their mind. But apparently that's not okay.
3: No, exactly right. I mean, it's a bit like being invited to an orgy, right? But you take the HIV test after it's finished. You know, what's the point of it? It doesn't protect anybody. It doesn't show you that you shouldn't be traveling. You know, and all they've done with the PCR test is make it more expensive for people to go anywhere. It's not going to change anything. It's not going to make it any safer for anyone. It's almost as though they're completely oblivious to the science as opposed to following it.
0: It seems to me, Mike, that actually the government have been pressured by the people that have been screaming for Plan B for a very long time into actually doing it by stealth you know, they've had this variant, it's raised its head, we were always going to get another variant. The most likely scenario, although not guaranteed, was that it was going to be milder, but much more transmissible. And it does on first glance, and this may change, and if it does, I will change what I say. It does look like that's the case. But the government have been pressured via this variant to actually introduce Plan B by the back door. And you know what? I spoke to my mum at the weekend, Mike, and she was like, oh my God, I've got to wear a mask again. She was so distressed by it because it distresses her And everybody will scream at the radio, oh, she's exempt. But she doesn't want the confrontation. No, I mean, not
3: everybody's like me. I mean, I'm looking forward to the first person on the tube that asked me to wear a mask because they're going to get an absolute bucket load from me. Because one, they can't ask you for an exemption, they can't ask you why you're exempt, and they can't make it a law. It's not, it's not a law, they cannot prosecute you, they can pretend that they can stop you from travelling, they can say that they're going to you know, prosecute you, but there is no legal defence for that, and the case will never stand up in court. And at the end
0: of the day, there isn't any reason to do it anyway. What is the bloody point of it all? Listen to Julia's show this morning and I listened to the health secretary quoting a meta-analysis that's been out recently. And it really disturbs me to listen to, to government people using studies which actually are nonsense. And last week there was, um, you know, not last week, recently there was the big study from Bangladesh, massive study, 400,000 people, that people misinterpreted as saying that masks reduce transmission by 53%. That has actually now been proven to be complete nonsense. Yeah. But they were screaming about it. And even full fact, and let's face it, full fact actually... Bunch of is not, Absolutely. And they're not really a proper fact checker. No. But even they have had to come out and say, it's not true. That isn't true. They mm. don't reduce transmission. Right. But that
3: is exactly the point. And what you know, for example, and we're going to get onto this later on with Liz Cole... These teachers last night, and I don't, you know, I don't care whether they don't wear masks, but don't spend an entire evening hugging each other, kissing each other, no doubt doing all sorts of other things at the hotel where the event took place. Nadeem Zahawi there talking about how proud he was to, to love all these, you know, heroes of teaching. And then they come back to school today, although I suppose loads of them will have a day off because they've got a hangover. They come back to school today and demand that my children wear a mask. Get lost, guys. Sorry, not happening.
0: I'm really worried about the children, Mike, I really am. I think this is another blow to them where they're being told once again, that you, you little people, really are the the carriers of this disease. You're the one that are killing people. Cover your face. And I think the mental harm that I have seen in GP, especially with teenagers, who are just at that point in their life where they're trying to judge social interactions, you know, they're trying to learn how to flirt and how to make new relationships and get a new girlfriend or boyfriend. You know, they're suddenly once again plunged Mm. into this wear a mask because you're dirty. And I've got a teacher as a patient who told me that they're sitting in classrooms with the windows open. They've all got two coats on. They're absolutely freezing. Nobody is learning because they're just focused on mask wearing and being cold. Well, guess what happened after
3: the, uh, the briefing? Uh, For such as it was on Saturday, the BBC goes straight to Susan Mickey, the communist who bangs on about how uh, if you want to have anybody in your house, you should have all the windows open, open all the doors. You know, basically, we should be wearing masks. We should have been wearing them a long time ago, completely and utterly nonsensical um, arguments that she was making. But given absolute full and frank time to spend propagandising on the BBC, uh, the national television and media channel, which is owned by us paid for by us it's an absolute disgrace
0: don't forget mike that susan mitty last september circulated an email to her colleagues suggesting that three prominent doctors one of them carl a professor of evidence-based medicine was smeared with an anti-vax label that's what's going on here and people don't know this
3: It's absolutely shambolic. Listen, stay with us, Renee, for a minute because we've got to stop and take a little time out and listen to uh, to some advertising in order to keep us going here. But listen, I am not happy this morning, people, and I can see that you can probably notice that. And I apologise if I'm a bit grumpier than normal, but I'm just really, really peed off with the whole situation. I'm trying really hard not to swear. Uh, It's not going to be easy, but I'm going to do my best. However, if I do, luckily there are people behind the scenes who can uh, save you from having to hear anything terrible that might upset you, even though I know it wouldn't upset you. This is why I always want to have free reign and why sometimes you should be allowed to bloody well swear because sometimes it's the only thing you can do. This is Talk Radio. Across the UK, online, on DAB+, and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Gray. On Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. Let's uh, have a look at see what the advice is coming into education uh, establishments in uh, England right now. Uh, we're talking to Dr. Renee Hundercamp, uh, who's as angry as I am about what's been going on. Let's not let's not forget that last night uh, there was an event at which uh, teachers were given awards. Very nice too. I'm sure they're very happy to get an award for being a teaching hero. Uh, all very much crammed into an event space. All very much sitting very close to one another. All up on the stage hugging each other. Uh, all doing all sorts of social activity which is very very welcome as far as i'm concerned none of them wearing a mask here's what it says uh, at some uh, an email i've just received uh, renee schools are currently considering how best to manage events at the end of term that may bring large groups of people together there is currently no national guidance on this issue and decisions will need to be made at a local level based on infection rates and risk assessments at individual schools like us i am sure that you will support school leaders if they need to change plans due to the rising number of cases So it's one rule for them and it's another rule for the rest of us. And by the way, um, I've had uh, communications, shall we say, from some teachers who are complaining that kids are missing school because they're off ill, to which I say, I've got a jar. You know that old thing they do about, you know, when you first get married, you have a jar and you put a a bean into it every time you do something, right? And you never actually empty the jar. I'm going to say I'm going to put 304 beans in a jar, which is the number of days that my kids missed school last year. And for every day that they're absent, I'll take one out. And when it gets to zero and there's nothing else in there, then you can tell me that they're missing school, but until then you can get lost.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, Mike there's several things there, isn't there if you unpack that, as you can hear, I'm a bit huskier today than usual because I have a cold, and the reason I have a cold is because I have a three year old and she's just from school a constant viral pot but that's fine because she's building her immune system and this is what is going on at schools they're not all coming down with covid anymore we've seen that if you look at the COVID infections in schools it is actually now tailing right off the reason for that is because it did run through schools when we went back to school and now they are most of them immune and that's great news But at the end of the day, now that we're looking at all of these new rules, my nursery is not having a nativity play that I can go to. They're going to film it and send me a link. Oh, great. That's how they're doing that. So you know i'll you can watch it Mike if you get really bored um <laughs> but the most important thing I think is that if we're going to introduce things that's fine if we 've got a disease that's killing people, of course it's fine to do things, and it's it's essential we do things to make sure that the minimal number of people get it and die from it. but if we're going to introduce restrictions for which there is very little, if any, and certainly very mixed evidence i e masks then we need to then also do an analysis of the harm that that restriction will cause. And that's not what's being done here, I don't think. The government have never done that. We've seen report after report now of extended waiting lists, people dying because they didn't go to hospital, children losing development and reading skills. And we're going to have this all again now. Children are going to drop back much more. People are not going to go to hospital when they should because they're scared. And more damage is going to be done for introducing things and scaring people, terrifying people, that are not proven.
3: And that is the problem. And an awful lot of people who have had difficulty throughout this pandemic because of their mental health, because of their anxiety and, and, you know, as they say, disabilities that you can't always see.
0: What are they going to make of all this? Absolutely. And these people are going to suffer, and I'm going to see them. I'll see them this afternoon when I go to work. You know, I've had people crying on the phone that they would rather catch COVID than actually close their business anymore or wear a mask anymore. You know, it's really sad when you see the mental anguish that this is causing. And it would be fine if there was good evidence, but I think the harms to patients and people are far greater than the evidence that they do anything. Yeah. Look, if you look, around the world you know look at scotland that's had a mask mandate you know what are they going to do next to stop omicron i mean what are they going to do
3: I mean, it's no ex- exception, and I'm not the first person to point this out, that there is, in fact, an anagram of OmniCom which is moronic, and I'm just going to call it the moronic variant, because the reaction that this government has, has given it and the reaction that other governments in Europe have given it, and even in America, where they've all banned flights. And, I mean, what's the point? They let people arrive here from South Africa on Saturday morning, right? None of them were given a test when they arrived. They were all sent off to wherever it was they were going, Nobody bothered about, uh, you know, closing the borders before it was too late to close. And the South Africans have quite rightly said there isn't any point in shutting borders. We've seen that it doesn't work. Also, by the way, sorry to make a political point here. There's still plenty of people arriving uh, from Africa on dinghies into the southeast coast of this country who I presume haven't been tested for it either.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, there's no logic to this at all, is there? As I said, they delayed all of the implementation. If they were that worried, it would have been immediately. I think South Africa in itself is a really interesting case. Yes, people in South Africa are much younger than they are here, and that could be why it's milder. But they also have 20% of the population has HIV, and 30% of those are not on antiretrovirals. Now, those people would be hugely susceptible to a really virulent um COVID strain. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that don't add up here. We will need more evidence over the next few weeks. Of course we will. But at the moment, I'm not sure that this knee-jerk hysteria is justified by what we're seeing. No,
3: it, it definitely isn't. Because this government has not got anything right recently, I would say, when it comes to the restrictions. You know, they told us that they were never going to go back. They told us that, you know, these were irreversible lifting of restrictions. We were never going to have any more. You know, the idea that uh, only, I suppose, what, over the course of the last 10 months, you can see Matt Hancock, you can see Chris Whitty, you can see Patrick Vallance, you can see any number of medical experts saying that masks don't really work. And yet here we are. Asking people to wear masks again, but only in certain places. Like somebody said, you can go to your Christmas party, snog the face off your manager, uh, then you have to put a mask on to go to Tesco's and pick up a coffee on the way home.
0: Yeah, and you know, if you go to a pub or a restaurant, which I fully support, of course, because the last thing our hospitality industry need right now is... Sorry, you can hear the three-year-old in the background. That's right. It ...is um, to actually have more things in place which will further damage livelihoods people will be made redundant and we know that poverty causes poor health we're not thinking about the ramifications of all of these things but at the moment if you go to a nightclub or a pub you don't have to wear a mask but if you go to your corner shop you do Mm. again no logic absolutely ridiculous so what do you
3: reckon i mean i'm hopeful Um, that they will see in the next two to three weeks because they say they're going to go right up to the wire for those people who are going to try and go away after the school holidays begin. They're literally going right up to the wire the final week of school uh, to tell people if this is all going to change. And so people don't know what to do. You don't know whether to to cancel your holiday. You don't know whether to cancel the visit you were going to make to your parents. I know people who have got New Year plans that they want to have people coming to their house for a party. They don't know what to do. It's absolutely ridiculous.
0: It is, and it's almost Groundhog Day, isn't it? I mean, I remember being in exactly this position last year, wondering if London was gonna be plunged into a tier four, which of course it was. So we had to leave London and go and stay with people elsewhere before that happened because we wanted to get away, which is what we do every Christmas. It's our family get together. And I think the stress that's being caused buy this on people is equally damaging yeah. it's not good for people to be in a constant no, state of stress it really isn't it's my daughter I,
3: my daughter my amazing daughter came here from Dubai last year the day she arrived they shut it all down and she was like I wish I'd stayed in Dubai because she could have at least had some fun she couldn't see any of her friends I mean she had we had a lovely time and we had a very nice family for Christmas and she's going to New York as well so I'm going to go and see her uh, and if they stop me doing that I, like I say I don't know what I'm going to do I'm I literally won't be responsible
0: it's really sad. And I, for me, I'm just terrified by the mental anguish that this is going to cause people. And, you know, people just keep saying things like, oh, you know, it's not a big deal. Yeah, just
3: wear a mask.
0: just wear a mask. stuffed. Really How about it's I stuff even. a
3: mask in your mouth and then you can, won't be able to tell me that.
0: Yeah. You know, for people that are deaf, for example, they can't hear anyone speak anymore. So they're plunged into a world of isolation and it's already a world of isolation when you're deaf. So it just gets worse. There are so many examples of the harm that it does.
3: I know. It's shocking. You better go and uh, sort out your daughter there because, uh, you know, she won't thank you if you you say, just blame me. Everybody else does. So it's Mike Graham's fault. Uh, Renee, fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much. Dr. Renee Hundekamp, NHS GP, medical writer. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the independent republic of Mike Graham on talk radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. This is, of course, Talk Radio. We are mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore. It's as simple as that. That is the message today uh, from the Independent Republic to Boris Johnson to Downing Street. If you want to join in and give him a message from us. Uh, the good people of Talk Radio, uh, then you know what to do. You can tweet us at Talk Radio, at IROMG. You can call us, of course, as well, Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand. You can, of course, as well, watch us on television, uh, on Apple TV, Recruiting, Samsung TV+, Plus, uh, Roku, YouTube. Now, on Amazon Fire, of course, as well. Just go to the talkradio.tv page or, if you want to, just download the Talk Radio TV app from the App Store. Now, we're going to hear from Nicholas Sturgeon, who's currently speaking in Scotland about the moronic... Uh, variant, which is apparently affected six people in Scotland. Let's have a listen.
0: Other countries, however, much more data and analysis is required to be certain of this, and if it is more transmissible, to understand by how much. Further work is also needed to confirm what impact this variant might have on the effectiveness of vaccines and the risk of reinfection. The WHO said yesterday that preliminary evidence suggests there might be an increased risk of reinfection, but stressed that information at this stage is still limited. It also said that there is currently no information to suggest that the symptoms from Omicron are any different to the symptoms from other variants. I'm
3: sorry. Yeah, you know, so it might. So it might be less more choices It might be, or it might not be. Oh, it might. Well, uh, Maybe uh, it will be something that it doesn't uh, get uh, stopped by the vaccine. Might, maybe. Maybe it might, but might not. Might, may, may, may. Ah. Jeez. I mean, what is going on in this country? How have we managed to get ruled by these complete and utter morons? How the hell have we managed to elect a collection of completely useless idiots who don't know what they're doing? and who like standing behind lecterns and saying absolutely nothing, the square root of sweet FA. They don't know anything, so therefore they have to say something about the fact that they don't know anything. Deary me. Let's talk to David Simmons, because I feel like I need to talk to somebody sensible. He's Conservative MP for Lip Northwood and Pinner, co-chair of all parties, a parliamentary group on refugees as well, because let's not forget, only last week, before all of this happened, we were talking an awful lot about people that were coming here illegally, on boats, in their thousands, many of them possibly carrying the new variant. But guess what? We don't know whether they are or not. and something else we don't know. David, a very good morning to you. Good morning. I'm sorry to be so grumpy, but I'm afraid that uh, the events of the weekend have slightly cheesed me off um, because I can't really make any sense of what's going on. But I don't want to talk to you about that unless you particularly have something to say about it. I'd rather talk to you about a far more, I think, serious problem which is the problem of the illegal migration of thousands of people into this country and i know uh, having listened to you speak about this before that you're quite sensible on the subject which not everybody is
2: we need a balanced approach, and there are a lot of people who feel pretty grumpy about this as an issue but i think the deaths of 27 people in the english channel brought home that it's it's a serious practical problem yeah as we saw in 2015, when that little boy island Curdy, was drowned in the Mediterranean and, and washed up on a beach, people suddenly came face to face with the reality of what people trafficking, people smuggling means. And it did result in a commitment from governments across the world to tackle it. And it's clear that we need to get a really tight grip on what's happening. In fairness to the French and the European Union, they've been working on this for some time, but probably not paying as much attention as they have been to what's been going on in the Mediterranean. And we need to see some of the same focus on the French side of the channel and also the new nationality and borders bill, which is going through Parliament at the moment, is an opportunity to just improve the way in which we manage the British end of this. Because at the moment, for example, you can't claim asylum in the UK at all unless you're physically here. So the decision about whether someone is an illegal immigrant or not is not a decision that can be made until they've already arrived in the United Kingdom. It means people are vulnerable and fall into the hands of the
3: traffickers and the smugglers. And we need to find a way to break that model we do the problem with the bill it seems to me though david it's a very long way off i'm told it's going to be probably april possibly may before we see that coming out of the other end of the parliamentary process and so uh, between now and then you could have another 10,000 people arriving so uh, the french are clearly not playing ball uh, in fact they've taken their ball and gone home with it having uh, sort of disinvited uh, pretty patel at the weekend they seem to be behaving in a very um, you know sort of cavalier fashion so it really surely must take it now to boris johnson to do something now rather than say, oh, well, we're going to fix it? Because we've all been listening to that for a long time and people are sick to death of it. It could easily be considerably more than 10,000. I mean, the peak of asylum
2: applications in the UK was 2004 and there were around 80,000 that year since when it's been falling steadily. But it started to go up recently. And really what we've seen with people drowning may well be the tip of the iceberg. We know that other bodies have been found in the past. So we suspect there've been incidents like this in the past that simply have gone undetected. But you're absolutely right, it requires concerted effort. Now, we used to be, as an EU member, part of something called the Dublin Treaty, and that meant that countries in the EU took back individuals that had been in them, Um, during the course of their journey on their way to the UK. clearly we've left that treaty, so I can understand... Yeah, but did that actually ever happen?
3: Did that actually ever happen, David? Because we saw, and I know it's only one case, but we saw the case of the Liverpool bomber, uh, who was denied an asylum claim in 2014, right, when we were presumably in that Dublin agreement. Um, I don't know how he got here, uh, but he was still here, and he was still able to get in a taxi and try and blow it up uh, just a couple of weeks ago.
2: The UK used to deport quite a few thousand people, in fact, sometimes tens of thousands of people back to other EU countries where they could and should have claimed asylum. And I've seen this personally when I went to visit a jungle camp in Calais. There were large numbers of people who were there in what was a traffickers camp. Down the road at the town hall in Calais, there was a setup where people who wanted to claim asylum in France could go and do that. But of course, the reason they weren't doing that was because they knew that if they got to the UK and were found to have been in France and we would check their records, then they would be sent back. So it was what the traffickers were telling them to do. But we need an agreement of a similar nature now. We need to find a way of agreeing with our allies, perhaps either through Dublin or a similar mechanism. But more importantly, what we need is a system a bit like the one we set up for Syria, where people have a safe and legal route. So before they set foot on a plane, before they get anywhere near a boat to the UK, we know that they've got the basis of a valid claim here. Three quarters of people who arrive on our shores across the Channel are accepted under British law as having a valid claim. And what silence. is a valid claim? Exactly? To,
3: how, do, how do you define a valid claim?
2: So a valid claim under British law is that someone has a well-founded fear of persecution in the country from which they come. So they have to show, for example, that they're someone who was living in a country like Iran, where there are very, very strict religious rules, that because they do something or because they left um, the religion of that country, that they are likely to be killed. Yeah, but I'm sorry, David. I mean, people harmed.
3: people that listen to this show will say to me, what's that got to do with us? I'm sorry that they're having a bad time and I'm sorry that they're facing persecution. But, you know, it's not our responsibility to give them a home in this country just because of that. Because otherwise, this place will be full of people who seek uh, to live here just because they want to. The UK takes about one-tenth of the number of refugees that Germany
2: does, about a quarter of the number of refugees that France does every year. And again, again, not question, I'm, again do, I'm not
3: interested in that argument, David. Neither is anybody answer, else. Yeah, I think the, the
2: answer to the question of why do we do it is that after the Second World War, Winston Churchill and many other statesmen across Europe said, we need a system to try and make sure that if we see something happening again with people being victimised, that there is an opportunity for a place of safety. And that, that agreement says, firstly, that people should um, should seek or must or should seek to claim asylum in the first safe country that they go to. But it doesn't restrict that. So we know, for example, that in the case of Afghanistan, the vast majority of refugees are in the countries immediately around Afghanistan. In the case of Iran, that's where the vast majority of refugees go. But also, also, I get get all that, David,
3: but but we have a problem in the world with people who are displaced because they live in horrible countries where ghastly regimes are, are killing them, right? But that is not our problem necessarily. And you can't really hark back to the 1940s and say, well, that was when we made this decision, because there's hardly anything else that's valid from the 1940s. You know, just go and ask people that run uh, our universities if they listen to anything else that Churchill said, because they want to take his statues down in most parts of this country now. So why the hell are we listening to an edict that was given out uh, at a time when the world was a very different place? Because the lesson
2: of history is that if we ignore these things, they become our problem. And Britain is a global country. We trade around the world. And we know, for example, that the impact of people displaced, whether it's by climate change, whether it's because of oppressive regimes, that has a huge impact on our economy. It has an impact on the ability of Britain both to trade freely. It ends up if we have to send in military forces to stabilise places. It costs a huge amount of money to the British taxpayer to fund all that. But don't, so you, but don't you think, David, but don't you think that importing three economy.
3: but don't you think that importing, you know, millions of people over the last ten years to this country has also had an impact on our economy, has also had an impact on our infrastructure, and has also had an impact on our
2: country. Firstly, the evidence is that people who come to this country. As, as people who want to participate, for example. That's, that's not what I'm asking you. Local, I'm ask, huge, that's not what I'm asking countries. you,
3: David. I'm asking you whether um, you think that the numbers of people who have come here, boosting our numbers of population from somewhere in the order of 58 to 59 million to up to 65, maybe 70 million, do you think that's had an impact on our economy? Uh, it
0: has, and
2: I think the, the figures show that that's been a positive impact. But one of the things we're seeing now, of course, is there's a net reduction in the number of people in this country that more people have been leaving in the last few years have been arriving, so the people that's not the true. Tens of thousands, Why has our population gone up then? The tens of thousands that we're seeing coming across the channel are, are a fairly small number within that overall total, and we need to think about Yeah, but, our popul- yeah, but hang on, our, our population, Britain,
3: David, has gone up,
2: it hasn't gone down. But if we are genuinely global Britain, then we do need to be a global country, and we need to play our part as the United States do, as Canada does, as Australia does, as New Zealand does, as all of the European countries do. We need to play our part in supporting those who sort are of refugees, just as we play our part in providing military stabilisation to places at risk, just as we invest in countries around the world. It's good. Yeah, but don't, don't all right, well, let me ask you a question. Let me it ask you, let me get you off,
3: let me get you off the script, okay, and ask you a question. We have a massive problem in the world, okay, where so many people are now being displaced that something should be done about that. Surely the answer is to make sure that the countries that they live in are more livable, uh, more easy for them to stay in. Because you can't keep bringing people into a country as small as Britain. You can't keep bringing people into... Parts of France are absolutely, completely and utterly ruined as a result of what they've been doing with their foreign policy on bringing immigrants in. Germany, a million people came in when Angela Merkel said that they wanted to invite a few thousand. You know, you cannot tell me that the face of Europe has not been changed erratically um, by what has happened. And nobody's suggesting for a minute that the refugees who come are not coming with good intentions. But there are perils, there are problems. And surely the answer for the world is not to continue to just go, oh, yeah, that's fine, just keep coming in. Because surely at some point we are literally going to be full up and you can't keep letting it happen. Surely we have to fix the problems in those countries.
2: I think the world's answer clearly is one that exists at lots of different levels. And I think if we look at the model whereby the European Union secured an agreement with Turkey... So instead of large numbers of refugees from Syria coming into Europe, they stayed in Turkey. Uh, That's been funded by European countries that otherwise would have a much higher cost at home by overwhelming numbers of refugees arriving. And Turkey has managed that very well. So having agreements with other countries is a way through this. Clearly, military intervention can be a part of it. But when we've seen what's happened, for example, with Islamic State, you've seen the military might of the United States, of all the European countries, including huge amounts provided by the U.K., And that simply has not managed to stabilise that situation. And, of course, in those countries, if that conflict begins to spread, it starts to have an impact on natural resources, things like oil, gas, minerals, all of which are critical to our economy. So if we choose to ignore this, whether it is because we don't feel it's I'm not suggesting you ignore it. I'm not suggesting you ignore it.
3: I'm suggesting you fix the root cause of it. You know, you might remember the Mm -hmm. phrase tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. How about tough on refugees, tough on the causes of people who become refugees? Because it's the causes of that that are the problem which the world is facing. And you can't keep absorbing it. You know, in Denmark, for example, they're now now sending people back to Syria. You know, on the border of Poland and Belarus, people are being flown back to Iran because the EU says they're not proper migrants. So how does that figure with your policy?
2: And that is, that's part of the discussion with the Nationality and Borders bill. And indeed I asked the question of the Home Secretary in Parliament last week, what are we doing to take away asylum status that's been granted to people who perhaps shouldn't have had it. Right. But we need to make sure we need to make sure whether we do it for selfish reasons, because it will have a negative impact on the United Kingdom in the long term if we don't, right. or whether we do it for humanitarian reasons, it is the right thing to do for whatever reason we think is important. If we are going to be genuinely a global country and look to sustain the way of life, which we treasure in the UK.
3: Well, we treasure a way of life in the UK, which is being eroded, quite frankly, by the fact that we don't have enough doctors. We don't have enough dentists. We don't have enough um, schools. We don't have enough hospitals, we don't have road space. And what you think is a good idea is to put more and more people into that country uh, where there's going to be even more problems. Let me ask you a question, David, before I let you go. What happens to the people that arrive on our shores today? circo presumably puts them in a bus takes them to a hotel and puts them up but for how long and for what is the rule on that so all of those people go through the asylum
2: system in the uk and first question is whether they have a valid claim or not and if they do then they're able to take their part in the uk and many of those people will end up as yeah, you but it, takes, but, it can take, but it can take a year on. can't
3: it for that claim to be processed right
2: Many of those people will end up working in NHS hospitals as nurses and cleaners and porters and all the other jobs that we desperately, desperately. Need all right, to all
3: right. Let me ask and you another question. Those people who then.
2: are refused, well, those people who refused their asylum claim should leave the UK. And part of the problem we've had with but the they COVID don't pandemic, do it. Part of the problem we've had with the COVID pandemic is getting those people back to other countries. No, but and left it's no, but Hang on, come on, got, David, come on, David. Come on. I'm not. You know, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not sitting here like some kind of a citizens. shell.
3: You know, nobody's been sent back for the best part of the last ten years. To wit, the guy who blew himself up in Liverpool, who was denied a claim in 2014, seven years ago. He's still here. You haven't answered my question. How long do they stay in the hotels for? So how long they stay in hotels for
2: depends on where they're then going to move on to. In the past, traditionally, the number of days in a hotel has been perhaps a couple, and then they're accommodated in a house somewhere in a a low-cost part of the country whilst their asylum claim is considered. But the big problem, and I understand it, and this is part of the problem, we need to see where the other country is coming from. If the UK wants to deport a criminal who's got dual citizenship, you can see from the point of view of the other country why they may not wish to have that plane land on their territory and have that person back. So we need to deal with this in a grown-up way. We've got to be balanced about it. We've got to negotiate. We've got to find a way through this that's in our interest And it's in the other interests of the other country as well. Quite frankly, at the moment, if I was the French, I would just let the people get in the boats and say, it's not our problem, they don't want to be in our country. So we need to make sure that we negotiate and find an agreement with them that provides something that both sides can be be satisfied is a good deal.
3: Would you admit, David, today on this radio station that the system doesn't work?
2: The system in the UK, if we look at how it serves our interests, means that we have, compared to most of our peers... A very low level of asylum applications, but there are parts of that system. Would you system just answer the question? Are wrong. Please answer the question. Is the system broken? I, I'm not going to say the system is broken. The system for deportation so, so you think the system works fine? So you think the system works
3: fine then, do you?
2: Well, the, the question was: Is the system broken? So parts. Well, I'm asking another question are now. broken.
3: So parts, Other of, it parts are
2: broken. of it are working pretty well. Really? Which parts of it work well? If we look at child asylum seekers, for example, they do very well in our system. They go on to be high paying taxpayers they tend to go to university they tend to make a brilliant contribution many of those young people go to to be just fantastic british citizens so that's working pretty well if we look at the numbers of people coming through the system through um, the different parts of visas to come and work in the uk we're able to secure people for jobs that we need doing so those bits of the system work pretty well the big frustration is where you've got someone who at the moment is playing that system is producing multiple different reasons why they want asylum avoiding being deported even though they should have been that's the bit that's not working and that's the part that looks to be tightened up with the nationalities and borders bill by for example saying you have to say at the beginning what your grounds for claim are you can't initially claim it's one thing then later on say it's something else and that's exactly what's undermining public confidence at the moment
3: it is david appreciate your time thank you very much indeed david simmons co-chair of the all-party parliamentary group on refugees conservative mp for northwood and pinner This is Talk Radio. Across the UK. Online. On DAB. And on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Gray. On Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We're talking to Peter Hitchens with the Mail on Sunday of course. Wrote a very interesting column this week. We've spoken about uh, the mask situation. He's cheered me up quite dramatically which is good uh, because it's never good to be angry uh, when you're doing a radio show although I was quite enjoying it in the first hour. Let's talk now though about marijuana uh, because Peter you've always said that this is a much more dangerous drug than anyone will ever say uh, that it is particularly nowadays you know it's in common usage on the streets it's in common usage uh, on television everybody seems to be smoking marijuana these days Um, you maintain that it's a psychotic drug which could make people behave in a way which is quite unconscionable uh, and something that they wouldn't do otherwise without the influence of it tell us about what you wrote this weekend
1: well it's this extraordinary story from wisconsin now every time there is a rampage killing on either side of the atlantic or in news far away as japan I always wait for the news that the killer will turn out to have been a marijuana user. Sometimes it's steroids, sometimes it's steroids and marijuana, but uh, in a huge number of cases of these killings, the, the person turns out to be a marijuana user. Now, what people do is they respond idiotically to this and say, oh, are, you, are you saying that there is no such thing as Islamic terrorism, or are you saying there's nothing to worry about with gun control in the U.S.? Because there are two very big lobbies. The the gun control lobby in the U.S., which which takes any killing in the United States as being uh, a, a evidence of the need to get guns under control, and the what you might call the uh, the the, um, the the alarmist uh, lobby in this country, which wants to, to uh, tell us that Islamic terrorism is a huge threat to our society, both of these groups are offended by my saying this because they uh, they think I'm trying to undermine them. Well, I don't actually care. Uh, Whether I undermine them or not, what I'm much more concerned about is whether we what we see here, and it's not actually about terrorism or rampage killings. The point is, you'll know this as a a newspaper person, uh, that very few crimes are actually properly covered these days. Uh, Crime has grown so much, particularly violent crime. In, in in our society, particularly in, in recent years, that crimes which would once have made the front pages of national newspapers now barely make it to page 94 of local yeah. newspapers. So many they don't get examined. The point about these rampage killings is they do get examined, and it turns out that people who've committed crimes of, of crazy violence, and it is it is some crimes are rational. People are trying to 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 to, to, to gain something from them. These crimes have no purpose at all. Like the the the, the man last week who was uh, who, who was convicted of manslaughter after uh, stabbing his girlfriend and then running her over uh, with his, with his car. Uh, what was the point of that for anybody? What what gain? It really, was plainly the act of somebody who was out of his mind. And these. the thing about these high-profile crimes is that they are a a, a closely studied subset of crime in general. If we studied, as we should, all violent crime, and as I recommend, my guess is that you would find that the influence of marijuana in such crime is very high indeed. Mm -hmm. Indeed, there is a a very fascinating website called Attacker Smoked Cannabis, which anybody can search, uh, in in, in which a a, a very clever person has has set up now a, 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 a total registry of all the local uh, newspaper coverage of crimes in which marijuana is, a, is, is an element, and these are, say, these mad, irrational acts of violence, mm. sometimes leading to death, sometimes just a terrible injury, sometimes just to misery. There is so much of it about, and actually, last week was a very bad week for what I call the cause of big dope, which I equate with big tobacco yeah. the nasty greed lobby, uh, which doesn't care about human misery and prefers to make money. The two are so similar. Back in the 50s and 60s, big tobacco used to say, oh, no, nothing to worry about with cigarettes, no real harm at all. This is all state bossiness, telling people what to do. Mm. Uh, we shouldn't do anything about it. Bans on advertising, bans on sale, don't let's have that. Mm. Exactly the same arguments now being advanced by the almost equally rich uh, billionaire lobby, which seeks to get uh, marijuana on open sale mm. and advertised. Uh, on TV and uh, and available freely on the internet. they see huge riches in this, and large numbers of politicians see a huge tax opportunity too. So this lobby had a very bad week because in The Times, uh, a newspaper of the soppy left, uh, the columnist Claire Foges uh, wrote an article which more or less I could have written Mm. on this subject, pointing out all these things, a a huge breakthrough. And one of the first responses to it was a letter to to that paper from Professor Sir Robin Murray, one of the most distinguished psychiatrists in the country, uh, who virtually, he, he, I, I will only ever say there's a, a correlation between marijuana use uh, and mental illness. He pretty much accepts that the, the, the relation is is there and, and might as well be understood to be causal. And he's extremely, he's, he's greatly hardened his position on it uh, over the past few years because of the huge experience he has practicing as he does in South London of this problem, yeah. which is enormous. You go to any mental hospital in this country, you will find that the the, the people in it uh, our, our marijuana users on amazing, yeah. amazing proportion. But let, of me,
3: let me ask you a quick very question fine. because we're almost out of time, Peter. But I mean, this may be something we look at again because we need a bit more time to talk about it. But in America, where so many states now have um, legalised marijuana and the sale of it, um, most of them now, I think, have. There's very few that haven't. Um, well, in various ways, they have. Some, yeah. some
1: more totally than others.
3: Yes. But is there any evidence, uh, as far as you are aware, that their crime rates have gone up as a result of legalising it?
1: Well, not, not in this kind of instant way, because generally when you get legalization, it's preceded by long periods of lax enforcement of the kind that we've had here. So, for instance, enforcement of the, of the marijuana laws in this country uh, gradually ceased uh, after 1971 mm. and became almost non-existent by the turn of the century. Uh, so if, you, if, if, if marijuana were legalized in this country tomorrow, you wouldn't get a huge jump uh, in these things because it already happened. Uh, so you won't get that. Uh, I'll tell you what evidence there is. And that is one of the the classic arguments of the legalizers. Oh, well, if you legalize it and you take the trade out of the hands of criminal gangs, this has been proved now totally to be false. What's happened in Canada, which legalized and in Colorado and and other American states is the criminal gangs have continued to exist because immediately the stuff is legal. It's taxed and attempts are made to regulate its strength. And a lot of people don't want to pay the tax, and they don't want to have the strength legislators. The so they continue to buy from the gangs. Mm. So that claim has been proven to be false. And every time you hear anybody make it, blow them a raspberry, because it is proven rubbish. So just that's one thing we have gleaned. Well, from I actually
3: lies. personally know a guy who used to run a vineyard in California who now grows marijuana, and he says it's far more profitable. He doesn't mind paying the tax, um, and he's very happy doing it.
1: Yeah, but well, he's in competition with, uh, with 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 people who are undercutting his prices uh, in, all the time. Yeah. In the, uh, in, in the, in the yeah, but he's making so much. But he's making so
3: much money; he doesn't care.
1: But it, well, we're, the, the other ludicrous thing we're constantly told us there's strict prohibition against drugs in this country. Well, the, the figures came out today showing that in several areas of this country, drug driving mainly marijuana, occasionally mm. cocaine, is more common than drink. I'm dry. sure it is. How can that be so? Well, there we was a to...
3: time, you might have seen this story, but we have to go because, unfortunately, we're running late and I'm getting the eyes from uh, next door telling me that I have to stop talking to you. But, Peter, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. What I would say um, is that there was a, a report, I seem to remember, back in uh, the depths of the lockdown last year, where they said you could actually get cocaine delivered faster than a pizza. You know, and that's where we are in this country. So the idea that we say "But drugs are prohibitive, nobody can get them. What a load of rubbish. Absolute cobblers.